This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Women at Work on Business Radio. Here is your host, Laura Zarrow. Welcome to Women at Work and our ongoing conversation about how we can help get more women to join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics, for today's show on the data-driven approach to understanding what makes a place a good place for women to work. Thanks to a fantastic new report from Wharton's Social Impact Initiative called Four for Women, we have new insights on the key factors that make an organization a good employer of women and a roadmap for how we can use data to improve employment conditions and opportunities for women throughout and across organizations. This report into integrates the findings of hundreds of studies to identify the key factors that matter most to women. We're going to talk about these at length, but they include representation, pay, health, and satisfaction. I know, you're not surprised, but you'll see there's a lot of nuance to this. And provide guidance on how to get U.S. companies to effectively and transparently track these factors. My guest today is Sandy Morrow-Hunt, a senior director at the Wharton Social Impact Initiative and one of the report's co-authors. But I'm going to tell you a little bit more about Sandy before we dig into to the report and formally welcome her to Women at Work. So some of you may know Sandy as um, one of the leaders of Wharton Social Impact Initiatives, Impact Investing in Gender Work, and she oversees the initiative's finances and operations as a member of the senior leadership team. And that is how I first got to know Sandy. But she's also one of the hosts of Business Radio's weekly social impact show, Dollars and Change, which is live every Thursday at 8 a.m. Eastern Time. <coughs> she's been a judge for social entrepreneurship competitions, including the Forbes One Million Dollar Change the World competition, and has co-authored reports reports including Can Investing in Public Equities Improve the Lives of Women and Project, Project Sage. Prior to coming to Wharton, Sandy worked in consulting at Accenture and served as Vice President of Operations at Back on My Feet. But, you know, Sandy is my colleague. She is, you know, one of these noted experts and forces for good here at Wharton, and I couldn't be happier to join. have you join us on Women at Work today. The feeling is mutual. I'm so <laughs> glad to be here, and thank you for the lovely introduction. My pleasure. So before we dig into the report, because it's very much a byproduct of the work that you do in the mm-hmm. Social Impact Initiative, talk to us about what the initiative is and how it led you to do this report. Sure. So the Wharton Social Impact Initiative, housed here at the Wharton School, basically focuses on how business can be a force for good, period. <laughs> if, that's, if that's all you remember from the show, how can business be a force for good? That's yes. what we do. So we do that in three ways that I think are pretty intuitive for our role here at a research institution. One is we're developing the talent pipeline for social impact. So ensuring that the students that we work with across Penn and Wharton are equipped to go be leaders of this changing business landscape. Two is leading cutting-edge, innovative research. And so that is, you know, uh, what we're going to be talking about today with this report. The landscape of business is changing. Social impact is becoming a bigger force. It's new, it's a new space, and we need to make sure that um, it's governed by data, not anecdotes. And then third is building the impact investing community. So you referenced our Sirius XM show, Dollars and Change, which is on Thursdays from 8 to 10 on 132 here as well. And we want to make sure that we're playing a translator role, that we're not only doing research and, and you know, having 200-page documents where we outline things, but that we're putting them into infographics and putting them into the world and talking about them on digestible radio that people can listen to while they're grocery shopping and driving and sort of meeting industry where it is and helping to bridge the gap between the academy and industry. Okay, so I also want to connect the dots in another way, because I remember when the initiative was first formed, Mm -hmm. there were a lot of people who, part of what you were aiming to do, and I think you've done with tremendous success, is move people away from the thinking that only not-for-profits can do things that are Mm -hmm. socially responsible. Mm -hmm. Yes, worlds are colliding, um, (laughs) as I think Newman says on Seinfeld. Um, But what we see is, uh, you know, over the last decade or decades, you know, nonprofits are being challenged to operate more like businesses. Their funders are demanding efficiency and data transparency and effective operations. Um, and then businesses are also being expected to really have a greater um, amount of agency and positive social impact. And so they're expected to know what's happening in their supply chain factories in emerging markets. And they're expected to have an opinion on Colin Kaepernick. And, you know, we're seeing this sort of um, collision where it's not 
you know, nonprofits are expected to be ethical and do good and businesses are expected to make money, it's much, much, much messier and more fun. And actually, um, more integrated mm-hmm. in that not-for-profits have to function as businesses and businesses have to consider their impact on the world yes. around them. And that's not to mention the hybrid structures that do both, Yes, which we see a ton of now in all different sorts of, um, you know, legal constructs where you have, uh, you know, revenue generating arm and a, you know, non-profit arm and very interesting public, you know, uh, like investments that are being done at foundations. I could get very nerdy and technical, but yes, it's it's all sort of coming together. Well, I want you to get a little nerdy for yes. a minute. Ooh, yes. um, because one of the things that I thought was just so exciting to see was when um, social impact here was an idea that you and your team made real. And one of the first big reports that you put out was on impact investing. Mm-hmm. Talk to me about what social impact investing is and your work in that regard. Yes. So the report is Great Expectations, if anyone wants to check it out. And impact investing at the highest level is investing. So you think of your traditional, you know, market investments, investing that generates both a positive financial return and positive social impact. Leave it at that. I'm going for simple definitions today. (laughs) That works. If people are multitasking while listening to this, like (laughs) I must multitask while listening to my podcasts and uh, SiriusXM, then I will keep it simple. So that's impact investing. Within the universe of impact investing, there's all sorts of dimensions. So um, you can get folks who are targeting market rate returns. So I want to be impact investing, but still getting 10% returns. And um, there are folks who say, well, I'm going to use the money I used to use as philanthropy as impact investing. And with philanthropy, I got 0% return. It's a donation. So if I can get one, I'll take it and then I'll reinvest that. So you see that sort of spectrum of expected return. And then you see all these dimensions around impact. Um, ESG, sort of environmental, social, and governance, seems to have been the first uh, thematic focus to emerge in impact investing, a lot around carbon and um, folks wanting to invest in portfolios that um, had fossil fuels sort of omitted. And gender lens investing, and that name came about about a decade ago, is sort of this big trend around the concern of impact on women and investing. So in your work at Impact mm-hmm. Investing, um, what were you seeing in terms of gender lens investing? Is it uh, investing in companies that women are the CEO of? Mm-hmm. Is it where <laughs> the products serve women? Yes. How do you define that? Oh, it is a many multi-trillion dollar question, So, but a good one. So let's anchor it. Um, Criterion Institute is a, a sort of thought leader in this space, and I think they started using the term gender lens investing around 2009. So we're, we're new. It's about a decade old as an investment trend, if you will. Everyone coalesced around the term gender lens investing, which is very positive and sort of what happens in social movement building. And then now it's sort of starting to get more specific, and folks are asking harder questions about, well, when you say positive impact on women, what women and how? We've done some research, and this is actually forthcoming in another report called Project Sage 2.0, where we ask funds that are saying, hey, I'm a gender lens investor. What does it mean to you? Well, over 50% of our participants checked every box, <laughs> every option, <laughs> every option we gave. So this includes you know, women in leadership. So the company is led or has women in the C-suite, women on the board. It's a very you know, sort of popular topic, and I'll talk more about why that is the case, um, that the product and service benefits women. So I don't care who's running the company, but if they're making great birth control, you know, that's a product and service for women. Um, uh, women in the supply chain. So again, I don't care about the women in leadership or whatever, but I want to know that um, every single trickle down of their supply chain, they're not using child labor and they're paying wages and they're being good to the women in the supply chains. Um, it can be about the woman entrepreneur. Um, so that I'm investing in things that uh, are focused on the women entrepreneur. Or my sixth example here is the women employees of these companies. So I want to know that this is not just a good employer for the women in the C-suite and the women on the board, but all the women in the company. So, so here we have this <laughs> landscape. So you could say I'm a gender lens investor, and it could mean any one of these things or any other thing. We've seen some folks who sort of have more specific nuances to I'm investing in countries where women are leading governments and different things. Um and that's a, a complicated space place for the field right now is like, you know, is, is it important to get more specific? Um, but what I think, what I will champion is then just the need for transparency. If you're a fund saying that you're investing with a gender lens and the headline is invest in this fund, we're good for women, you need to be really clear about 
what who those women are and how you're making an impact on them. And what you're actually doing mm-hmm. for them. Yep. You're listening to Women at Work here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 132. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, and my guest today is Sandy Hunt, a member of the senior leadership team at the Wharton Social Impact Initiative and co-author of a really, I think, important new report called Four for Women, a framework for evaluating companies' impact on the women they employ. So, Sandy, as you're explaining this, and, and I love it because it's such a wonderful explanation of something that's Good. very elusive and complicated. Mm-hmm. And I think about those of us when we are investing, whether it's that we're shopping and we're trying to decide what ban- brand of something to buy mm-hmm. or where we're putting our retirement dollars, we want to feel like where our money goes echoes our values yes. and that it's um, helping the people and things that we care about. Yet you're, even in just that simple breakdown, it shows us that what we think we're investing in and what we're actually investing in can be two very different things. Yes. And there are, uh, you you know, on one end of that spectrum, there's some like nefariousness, you know, so you've heard the term greenwashing when something is sort of, you know, you put a little, um, uh, what's that, like a little... Uh, What's that type of uh, ribbon called that's really rustic, uh, like twine, right. a label, and then, you know, a cardboard right. label, and is it good for right. the environment? Where it's marketing and branding exactly. and dressing it up so that it looks green, but it's not. Exactly. And so all, there's a ton of that happening that's called pink washing, you know, right. that products and services or companies are being sort of um, trying to be very uh, signal that, you know, the work they do for women, and it's not actually there. But then there are also people who are doing it with the best of intentions and crushing it. And so it is a complicated space for the consumer. And so I think one of the things that this leads us to then is that question of when we're trying to look at is a company a good employer of women, Mm -hmm. what does that mean? Before we talk about that, I just want to pay attention, though, to all of the people that a company should be a good employer of and why that's not addressed in this particular report. So did you look at intersectionality, women of color, trans women? It's a great it's a great question. It's a great point. When we looked at this report, we were working off of, as you said, hundreds of studies that have been done. A very, very, very big part of our work is making sure that we are bringing the evidence base, Mm -hmm. very rigorous, peer-reviewed academic research to the field. The existing data simply tended to be a a binary gender uh, data. There wasn't Mm -hmm. um, sufficient data around intersectionality and things like this. Um, And also worth noting, this is male and female. So the report sort of has that binary approach to gender because that is what data was accessible. It's not a uh, statement from Wharton Social Impact that that is what we believe gender to be. It is simply uh, what the available data, how how it broke it down historically. Right. So we can see this as a building block for how we can start to look at gender and sexuality issues in the workplace Mm -hmm. around measurements that matter, that are consistently reported and gathered so that it's solid data mm-hmm. pointing at things that can give us real insight into what the landscape is like for women within the organization. Yes. And what we really think, you know, when you uh, read the report or as we talk through it today, you're going to hear this and go, well, that's great for men, too. Well, that's great for LGBTQ plus communities, too. Well, that's great for underrepresented minorities, too. Yes. You know, we we don't have the data to back it up, but we sort of think you could find and replace in this document and insert whatever sort of underrepresented group and make sure that they have representation, pay, health, and satisfaction. So in other words, there's two ways to think about this report. One is the intention with which it was written is how do we really look at this data, collect this data, report this data on an ongoing basis? Mm -hmm. We're going to talk about all the ways, why we do this and in what categories. But also that in the absence, and this is something that we've talked about, we talked about it at the Wharton People Analytics Conference, Mm -hmm. is that when you're trying to advocate and hear underrepresented groups within your organization, um, it's often that they're not reflected in the data because they're isn't the N. There aren't enough. If they're underrepresented, they're not mm-hmm. going to have enough to come up on some of these reports. But it doesn't mm-hmm. mean that they're not there. And it doesn't mean that we shouldn't be paying attention. Yes. And so, I think that, um, yes, 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 we agree. And um, a part of this report actually goes into talking about how you want to collect data and what are um, productive, effective approaches. Because as you talk about underrepresented communities, you know, where and how are they going to voice things? Are, going, are they going to make formal complaints? Are they going to respond honestly to a manager? Are they, you know, so we really talk a little bit about the, the power of survey research, which is much mm-hmm. more effective for some dimensions than a lot of people give it credit to be. Um, and, and yeah, to your point, it's very important that this is, is based in data because, um, 
you know, depending on the different social dynamics at play, uh, you know, the data may be the only thing that is speaking the truth quite clearly. Absolutely. But I'd say in the meantime, as we talk about this today, for our listeners, really think about both the ideas behind this and the data behind it. Mm -hmm. Both are important here. And so even if you're in a small company and you don't have the data um, or you're concerned about a group for which the data doesn't exist, these are important ideas Mm -hmm. about making a workplace welcoming for everybody. Yes, absolutely. And I don't want any listeners to opt out because they say, oh, I'm not an investor. One of the things I love about this report is that I do think there is something for everyone here. I think if you're a job seeker, these are questions to ask. Mm-hmm. If you are um, at a company, I'm, as I'm sure many of your listeners are, and you're a part of a, a women's networking group, a women's leadership circle, you're, you're some sort of sponsor for mentorship, these are really helpful questions to know. We don't expect everyone to, you know, 180 or go from wherever they are to the perfect vision of the four for women framework overnight. But they're helpful things to sort of nudge you in the right direction and give you some guidance on, you know, where you should be investing your very valuable time and resources. Absolutely. So what are the four for women? Representation. And what does that mean? So this means that you have gender diversity in the company as a whole, um, that you have then, then, and then sort of more specifically that you're looking by um, quartiles for um, gender diversity within each level of the company, in the divisions of the company, and the job categories of the company. So what we want to shy away from here is a hospital saying, you know, representation, we're 50% men, 50% women. Okay, well, t- tell us more. Well, all of our nurses are women and all of our Right. <laughs> management executives and surgeons and doctors are male. You know what I call that? What? The gender layer cake. There you go. You Where um, you'll see it through the hierarchy mm-hmm. of an organization, and it still creates the experience where people are in rooms where mm-hmm. um, the rooms are not diverse. Yes. Even if the organization, when you tally the bottom line, is diverse. So we're going to come back and mm-hmm. talk more about this, but I just want to cover briefly what yep. the four are. Yep. So there's representation. Yep. Then it's pay. Yeah, that's a big one. It is a very big one. And money, so, money, money, money. <laughs> and so the and it, money has power. It has a lot of trickle down effects. So um, the first one is that um, sort of the minimum poverty benchmark is met. So we don't want to make sure men and women are paid equally and incredibly poorly. Right. So the, <laughs> right. this is the, the first the sort of first dimension of pay is that threshold. Um we want to make sure that that minimum hourly pay is met part-time and full-time status, um, that uh, you want to take a look at the mean and median of hourly pay, the mean and median of bonus pay, because that can sort of be one of those tricky areas where you really start to see some deltas, um, and the mean and median hourly pay by gender across all the different units of the company that I sort of covered in representation. So you really want to make sure you're not just taking a, a top-line data point, but that you're looking at those nuances. And we're going to dive into this some yes, more. Yes, yes. Health. Yes. So health, um, you want to m- take a look at workplace fatalities by gender. So you see I'm saying by gender for a lot of these because you want to make sure that, you know, there are some industries that are more hazardous than others that are more, you know, f- just physically dangerous. And this is going to sound a little strange, but they should be sort of proportionately dangerous for men and women. Mm-hmm. Um, so you want to be making sure that there's sort of, um, re- you know, equity and safety. So you want to take a look at workplace fatalities, injuries and illnesses. Right. And, and to and yeah. to responsibly yeah. talk about yeah. that, it's not to say that everybody is equally getting hurt. It's to make sure that a whole gender or a whole subgroup, mm-hmm. an underrepresented group within the yep. population yep. is not having their safety needs ignored. Yes. Yep. Ignored. Yep. Or just, you know, what's going on? Mm-hmm. These are metrics that will allow you to look under the hood. Um, so if you have, um, you know, 10 incidents of rape at your company per year and nine are, um, you know, incidents happening to, to women, women, you have a very big sort of gender delta and that's something to explore. Every company is in a different place sort of as to how they want to progress and we can talk more about that. But continuing on health, um, you might look at compliance with the Affordable Care Act here in the States right now, Um, health insurance eligibility for full-time employees and for part-time employees, health insurance eligibility for family members. So that's another nuance where sometimes headlines can be deceiving, contraceptive coverage, paid maternity leave, both potential and actual, so what is offered and what is taken, Um, workplace stress, um, and this is you know, an emerging area of study as you take a look at like the psychological impact of health of sort of toxic stress, Um, employee experiences of sexual harassment uh, by gender, and then organizational climate for sexual harassment. 
So those are health. So we, right. inclu- as you can but, tell, and, and very, you know, very but, timely. But, but so what that's including mm-hmm. is, and it seems like in each of these, this is part of what feels so important about the report is you've taken things that we talk about all the time, but you've given them additional dimensions that we don't normally talk about. So now what's the list under yes. satisfaction? Yeah. And for example, right, employee sort of sexual experiences of sexual harassment, it's very important that that organizational climate for sexual harassment is also understood. Um, Absolutely. And trust me, I want to dive we'll, in we'll, sp- we'll spend some time there. Um, and then satisfaction. So this is the most sort of the most simple and the most vague and gooey and complex <laughs> is job satisfaction by gender. And so um, this is one where survey data actually can be very powerful. Um, there are certain questions and the report goes into some detail that you can ask to understand how um, satisfied someone is in their job. And again, you really want to look at those gender deltas. Um, so it's not saying everyone should be 100 percent satisfied in their job. But are the men 100% satisfied and the women 12% satisfied or vice versa? You're listening to Women at Work here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 132. I'm your host, Laura Sarrow. And my guest today is Sandy Hunt, a member of the leadership team at the Wharton Social Impact Initiative and co-author of a report that we're discussing called Four for Women, a Framework for Evaluating Companies' Impact on the Women They Employ. So we've got those four for four. We've got Mm -hmm. representation. We've got pay. We've got health. We've got satisfaction. And it sounds like as you're talking about these things, you're also telling us as organizations, as women, as consumers, as investors, um, that it's not just how we fare within a company on these factors, but it's how companies compare to each other that's Mm -hmm. important. So talk to me a little bit about the data that you use to get to these things. Yes. So one of the big... um or one of the first responses we often get on this report is, so what do I do? You know, give me the give me the answers, give me the roadmap. If I'm not doing well, how do I get there? And the reason that we don't have those answers is exactly the question you asked there, Laura. Every company's different. Everyone's in a different place. And that's why we aimed to put something out into the world that is universal, that everyone can be measuring. And depending on where you are, you're going to have a very different path on getting you know, to these end results. So the way I like to think about it is that um, the four for women is the destination. The journey is going to look very different. You might have an uphill journey, <laughs> you know, depending on the sector, you, uh, you know, the business is in and um, the history of gender in that organization, et cetera, et cetera. Um, there may be things you don't have to worry about at all because you're crushing it. I imagine mm-hmm. if, um, you know, elder care companies that were largely staffed by, you know, skilled nursing um, professionals, took this, they they wouldn't have to worry as much about representation. My guess is women, you know, are going to be consistently well represented in those jobs. They may have to worry about, you know, pay because if they're led by women or insurance by women or insurance exactly so you want to take a look at um, the individual paths but also with those kinds of organizations Mm -hmm. i think that's a good case where what we were talking about a little earlier of even if you're not reflected in the data here Mm -hmm. the ideas are important and to reverse it so if you know that you're Mm -hmm. you have an organization where 80 percent of your workforce is female how about when men are the underrepresented Mm -hmm. group and make sure that you're taking a look of do they feel like there's representation there for them Absolutely. And that's why these we love these data points is because we we the, the data, you know, the research was done around women, but we really do believe in thinking about and analyzing these. This is a framework you could look at and go, gosh, we're really having a problem with, um, you know, representation of men in our company. What should we be measuring? You could probably measure these exact Absolutely. same things and have them be sort of powerful tools. But also, I, while I want to honor that mm-hmm. any underrepresented group feels underrepresented, mm-hmm. there's also something socially, politically, economically important about making sure that women, particularly at the lowest um, level of pay and Mm -hmm. employment and advocacy, are lifted out of poverty. Mm -hmm. And I know you guys have looked at this on your show and the other work Mm -hmm. that you've done. Um, Could you just talk about that for a little bit? Sure. Um, So, you know, what we see, and again, these are some more anecdotes rather than data, um, is that, you know, Women women tend to invest. They invest in their communities and they invest in their families. This is something you hear a lot about in the nonprofit space and the social impact space. Um, we see statistics about um, the percentage of single mothers um, that are you know operating under the poverty line versus single fathers that are op- operating under the poverty line, and the trickle down effects are very significant um, when a woman is is sort of. Um, you know, suffering in poverty and doesn't have that economic empowerment. As we sort of chuckled about earlier, like money's important, pay is important. Um, that 
dimension can really unlock a lot of other things because it allows access to things like better nutrition. Um, you know, you're more likely to go to preventative health care, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so they're very important dimensions for, for all women. But um, what we like about this report is that it does take the focus off of measuring women on the board and women in the C-suite mm-hmm. who tend not to be um, in the lower socioeconomic strata and really takes a look at all women throughout the company and places equal measure on um, how women are being treated throughout the company. Right, because recognizing that it's a problem from top to bottom and culture is set from the top, we do spend so much time looking at who's in leadership roles because we've also, you know, desperate to have that glass ceiling mm-hmm. broken. But at the same time, if we're not looking holistically at the organization, our societal challenges are just going to keep being replicated, never mind the pipeline problem. Yes, yep. And, let's, and to spend a moment there, so... Um, one of the reasons we wanted to create this report is, you know, if you, you know, Laura wanted to say right now, I want to move some of my, you know, four hundred one k money into a into some funds that you know are good for women. So I'm looking for companies that are good for women that will be, you know, companies that I will hold shares of in these funds. What would what would you look at, like? Um, you know, tell me. Right. Like offhand, it's so funny as you say that. The first thing I'm like, well, I love the Dove campaign. Right. But that's not. An indication of whether their Dove is really right. great but to you're their employees. An educated woman who has yeah. a show about this, right? And it's like, uh, okay, so you know, right? And so, but off the top of my head, I'm like, symbols. What are the things that make me respond? Yes, exactly. And I know that that's not the right measure, but no. if I come up with that, hey, exactly. And so, and so, we we sort of thought about like, gosh, how do how do individuals make this these decisions right now? And it's sort of a couple of things. One is, um, and if you were like applying for a job, you might be asking these questions, looking at. What, we'll, what we call the inputs. So not the outcomes. Our report is about outcomes, not inputs. So you have lactation suites. Great. Why? Well, so that our working moms can do what they want to do and feel happy and valued. Great. Why? So that they stay. Why? So that they're represented well. Why? You know, so that our pay gap closes. So you know, we don't really care about the input so much as we care about that as outcomes. And making sure that the things that look like good ideas are actually producing good exactly. results. Um, how can we look at organizations in order to see, are they really good at these things? Or is it just that they dressed it up really well in their big ad campaign? Yeah, it's a hard question because they're very sophisticated ad campaigns, you know, and, um, <laughs> you know, women still make the large majority of commercial um, decisions and sort of, you know, invest sort of, uh, you know, consumer products are, are largely driven by women. Uh, more and more, also, we're seeing women who are saying that they want their investments, their invested capital to align with their values. And that's why we're seeing one of the many reasons we're seeing the gender lens investing trend sort of, uh, you know, gain momentum. Um, how do you tell is, you know, is a big yeah. question. It's really confusing. So right before the break, <laughs> I was saying, I was asking you, like, what would you look at? And, and um, as a consumer myself, I feel like we've got four options. And when I say consumer, I mean, I'm in, you know, I'm investing, I'm buying off the mm-hmm. shelf, I'm choosing to work for, et cetera. You can look at the inputs and you see a lot of this. And when you, you say to, inputs, define an input. So these are activities um, who that don't exist for their own sake, but they more, um, they're going to help you accomplish a bigger goal. Um, so, uh, so can we oh, say yeah. it's things that an organization does theoretically to, to help keep the more women. women in the workplace? Yep. Um, and the way I always test an input is sort of running it through um, – like if you have lactation suites, but there's such a strong uh, social stigma against being a working mother that they're not used, well, then the, what's the point of a lactation right. suite? Or if you have a lactation suite and it takes 10 minutes to walk there because it's on the other side of mm-hmm. the campus. Exactly. Yes, exactly. So, so you know, what's the um, – do you really care about a lactation suite if it's not actually advancing, you know, these larger goals around women? So you can look at their inputs. And this is very often what you see on corporate websites. And it is helpful. Like I was a nursing mother. That mattered to me. I did care about the ultimate big four for women goals, but I also just needed to make milk for my child in right. a convenient way. So I'm not saying it's bad that they promote them, but they can't. Uh, we can't see those and assume it means that those bigger things, that they've gotten you know, everything right. right. And I think that there's two reasons behind that. One is that um, very often um, organizations, small teams, large teams, put in things that they think are going to be solutions, but mm-hmm. it's not exactly a successful innovation yes. process. So it could come with the best of mm-hmm. intentions, but because it, the the system that it operates in, its mm-hmm. ecosystem, was not understood, mm-hmm. they may not yield the results that you want. So 100. if you're not tracking yep. with data, you won't know. Yep. Yep. And then the other time is when they're window dressing mm-hmm. or they're superficial things that are easy to do to try and send a message, but more fundamental things aren't being done. Absolutely. 
Exactly right. You can say we have the most gorgeous state-of-the-art lactation suites, you know, with com- complete with a, a pedicure while you sit there and employ no women at your company. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> you know, you don't really need to brag about that lactation suite to me. So, um, so we can see a lot of inputs, and that can you know help inform some decisions. But it's really not telling you if that company truly is a good employer for women. You can look for associations with other big groups, brands, and things like the um, Women's Empowerment Principles or the Sustainable Development Goals. So SDG five is is women, and so you'll see on a lot of you know big multinational corporations like we're we're proud to support SDG five. Awesome. How and what is it? So yeah, exactly. What are you doing that's advancing? So you support it, but what does that mean? And what and so- are Women's Empowerment Goals? Whatever you want them to be. I mean, right. Like, right. So like the SDGs goes into it. But if a company is telling me we support it, what is that? You liked it on Facebook? You're donating billions of dollars? You're changing all your corporate practices? Any and all of the above? So you there know, are big differences there. Very right. big differences. So it's sort of, um, again, something that you really need to sort of dig deep on. And there's a lot of power in those amazing groups. I'm not trying to downplay it. But that doesn't tell me if a company is accomplishing representation, pay, health, and satisfaction. The third thing a consumer can do right now is look at publicly available data. So women on boards and women in the C-suite are often um, and often legally mandated to be publicly available. Uh, It's one of the reasons we think so many uh, gender lens investing funds are using those as their tool for selection. Oh, because we can see them. You can see them. Even though they they may cover your top five C top five people in the C-suite and not many more. Yep, but it is publicly available. So if you're talking about... So it's something. mm -hmm, It's something, and it's something you can get consistently. And that's really one of the big, big, big things for... Uh, you know, trying to rally uh, the world around the four for women, if I may be so bold, is that you need to be able to collect data consistently. If you are creating a fund, and don't turn this off if you're not into finance, just bear with me. If you're creating a fund, you're investing in shares of companies. If you say this is a fund of companies that supports working moms, and what you care about tracking is lactation suites and paid maternity leave and uh, you know, uh, sick days allowed to be taken for children, you need to be able to get that data point from all participant companies in order to create that fund. And so we do need to sort of align around a universal set of metrics so that folks can say, oh, I just want to invest in companies like this, and I know they're all going to report this data, and I can, I can create a bundle. And also, it's not just the metrics about those details. It's also the question of what are the populations we're talking about within the organization? Like, like we noted, even in trying to talk about women at every stage mm-hmm. of the organization um, – and that there are lots of people that were still not directly represented in this. Mm-hmm. Um, when we think about women within the organization and we rely on the data that's easily available, and we're th- thinking about CEOs and senior level management mm-hmm. and um, the people that we aspire to be or we can relate yeah. to, What we need to also make sure that we're thinking about all the part-time workers, mm-hmm. all the people who are barely making minimum wage, mm-hmm. because that's an essential part of how that company re- – that's the lion's share of the employment population at the company. Absolutely. It's triangular, usually, right? So you have um, just larger workforces at the sort of lower levels of, of – um, you know, pay throughout the company. Um, and again, there is very good reason, like rock on people who are gender lens investing and say, I want to invest in companies that have women on the board for all of the reasons that that matters and they believe that matters. That's awesome. The four for women focused on, are you a good employer for women? So this is not me saying those things don't matter. They do. But if your focus is understanding if a company is a good employer for women, you cannot just look at women on board and women in the C-suite. Like the data does not suggest that you can do that and that those two things correlate. Right. And one of the things that um, – and this is probably – we could talk about this for a whole other hour mm-hmm. – is that if you're <laughs> only <laughs> looking at – if you what, what you're trying to do is say, can I use that number to mm-hmm. determine something about the organization? And you're trying to correlate it with bottom line performance. That's the other thing is that those things don't correlate. Late, but it doesn't mean that they're not important. Yes. And the things that you're talking about here are really the things that make for a much more diverse and inclusive environment. Yeah. So, and, and that is that's, you know, a very important part. We didn't solve gender lens investing. We aren't saying all of gender lens investing should be focusing on companies that are, you know, these four things, because gender lens investors may have very good reasons for wanting to invest in women entrepreneurs or break that glass ceiling by investing in companies led by women. Awesome. Bravo. Cheers. That's great. It's just not what we focused on in this report. Maybe we'll find some funders and we'll get to write 
reports like this for all of those areas. But right now, this is the one we've got. <laughs> but, but both of these things are important. Mm-hmm. This is Women at Work, and I'm your host, Laura Sarrow. I'm talking with Sandy Hunt, a member of the senior leadership team at the Wharton Social Impact Initiative. And she's the co-author of this report that I just can't get enough of called Four for Women, a framework for evaluating companies' impact on the women they employ. Yes. So one of the things I want to dive into here, because, you know, when we're talking about investing, whether mm-hmm. it's our money or we're looking at women on the C-suite, we're talking about people who already have money who are not facing poverty, Mm -hmm. for whom health insurance is not likely a really, it's a factor, but it's not life or death. Mm -hmm. But part of what you lay out here when you talk about representation and pay and health is issues that really affect um, people who have no advocacy and have no safety net. Yes. So talk a little bit about the interrelationship between these things. Yeah. Um, So when we set out to put a framework out, we wanted it to be something that was global and universal and would work at a company that was a boutique consulting firm where everyone had health care and everyone had a PhD and master's and MBA. And it would also work in a uh, factory that was supplying to a supplier, to a supplier, to a supplier, to a multinational corporation. And, you know, everyone was the minimum legal working age. And, you know, and like, so we really wanted it to apply everywhere. And that's why these dimensions are what they are, so that sometimes we can take for granted, um, you know, just to looking at pay at a senior level or women on the board, but not say, well, wait, you know, does this, um, does this company pay above the poverty line um, for all of its employees and asking those questions. So, um, yeah, so they're all very, very important dimensions. And, um, and we, we didn't take that lightly when we put this together. No, and as you can see in the report, that you worked hard to find really consistent um, sources mm-hmm. for your data to work with what is a consistent source of defining what the poverty line is. Yes, and, and this, is not, <laughs> this is not easy math. Um, and uh, and we take that responsibility seriously. You know, we have the luxury of investing a ton of time in produ- into producing a report like this. Um, and we believe the world needs this evidence-based research in a way that's digestible. So for, for the listeners, in total... Got a 55-page report here. Got a couple notes pages at the end. Five, six, seven, eight pages of references. Boy, boy, did we go big on that. Uh, but you could read this thing in, what did you read it in, an hour? Yeah, 45 less. minutes. No, exactly. Yeah. And, and that you, was even like, I was taking notes yeah, and drawing yeah. pictures and stuff. And you could listen to this podcast or radio show and get a good bit of it. And you could look at the infographic and get the highlights. Or you could look at just page 37 of the report and look at the metrics table. So we really want to make it something that folks can take and use. And to your point, we want all those sources are, you know, peer reviewed academic journal studies. And often they're behind paywalls. Like this isn't even data some it's, people it's can access. But this is why I'm hard point to translate. Page 37. It almost mm-hmm. feels like when I'm at my Passover Seder and everybody's like, page 24, page 24, because <laughs> it's when we get to the festive meal. Um, <laughs> but on here, page 37, you're, these are possible metrics. Mm-hmm. And while it's a long list, could you just talk for a minute? Let's start with pay. Mm-hmm. And the different ways that we should be looking at pay if we're really serious about having an organization that's advocating for women. Yeah. So a good place to start that's very mainstream is if you take a look at the UK laws um, and how they've mandated um, the pay information be shared. If you looked at companies in the UK and you Googled, you know, equal pay at equal pay at insert company name you're going to get reports that even though the companies design them and they can look aesthetically a little bit different, they have to present that data in a consistent fashion. And it is sort of governed by, um, you know, using the same methodology to collect and share the data. And that's what's really powerful because then you can compare company to company based Mm -hmm. on that data versus right now without norms and standards around how data is shared, lies, damn lies and statistics, you know, (laughs) like you can say like, you know, our men and women are paid equally, tiny asterisk, tiny font, when surveying Sandy and Joe. Right. You know, <laughs> and when, if we leave out at, everybody else and yeah, don't can, include these these, Or, hey, we've made all those employees, you know, 34 hours a week so that they don't count and we're reporting full-time data, but actually 80% of our workforce is women who are part-time by a hair. And, you know, so it's, it's really important that the methodology has a standard behind it. And that's why we were sort of you know, rigorous in presenting that it needs to be mean and me- mean and median hourly pay by gender. And so just yeah. talk for a minute yeah. about that. Why? What's the difference? And why does it matter so much? Where does it get skewed? Yeah, it gets skewed in the presentation. Um, and why it matters so much is it's the only way to be able to sort of consistently compare side by side and ensure that 
it is a consistent methodology because, you know, I'm giving sort of nefarious examples to be tongue in cheek, but really, oftentimes, I believe this is done with the best of intention. And just, you know, I don't know, this company's doing it this way, this company's doing it this way, we'll do it this way, you know, this data looks better. I believe we're trying to do good for women here. And uh, okay, just full time employees. Okay, that makes sense to me. Like, I don't think it's often done with ill will. I think it's just not governed by a set of standards. But also when it's your responsibility to present your data from your organization, mm-hmm. and there's two ways that you can yeah. calculate it that are both real, yeah. but one is more damning than the other. Yeah. You know, because if you there's a difference between taking the average of the salaries and between splitting the distance mm-hmm. between the lowest and the highest, when you have CEOs, yeah. annual earnings who are in the, you know, mm-hmm. seven, eight figures, mm-hmm. and you have people at the other end who are barely making minimum wage. Yep. Absolutely. And, and use the word responsible there. And it's like, oh, what is, you know, let's get sort of philosophical. Like, what does that mean is if you're that HR person responsible for sharing this data, you know, the UK made it easy by saying it's your responsibility because you have this legal compliance. Mm-hmm. If you're in a US-based company responsibility, you might feel like your responsibility is to your CEO. So it's putting out the better number. Right. You know, and, like and to no your investors. governed standard. And that's why like that governance is so important. And We've seen, you know, we're optimistic in seeing, you know, carbon, for example. Like we were in a similar place a decade or so about, um, you know, some of these environmental risk factors. And now there are defined, prescribed, mandated ways that you have to share that data. If all impact areas got there, we'd be able to compare right. and have these consistent, you know, uh, you know, solid, d- defensible uh, data points to, to use. Um, and one of the other things I think to recognize mm-hmm. in here is that, the it takes time and expertise and money for an organization mm-hmm. to collect, manage, and gather and report on their data. It's not a small thing, oh boy, even it. though it's mm-hmm. worth it. And so part of the gap that mm-hmm. organizations need to close is not just saying we care about these issues and we want to track mm-hmm. them, but how do we make it real? Yep. I worked in higher ed for a long time and used to be mm-hmm. responsible for accreditation for the organizations I worked at. And there was a big shift that came appropriately wanting more data-driven reporting. Mm-hmm. But the distance that you had to travel as an organization oh, yeah. to get there was yep. painful. Yep. One was the concept of can and these numbers at all reflect what we really do. Mm-hmm. So getting buy-in that data actually is matter matters and can be real. Mm-hmm. But then there's how to execute it and how to get there. Yep. And so I think another part of the report that's powerful is that you're helping organizations see exactly which metrics matter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, and you're right. It's so expensive. And it's so... You know, it's expensive in terms of time. It's expensive in terms of, you know, uh, you know, just money, paying consultants to do it, employee time against it, employee time filling out surveys, all of these different things. And that's we, – we hope this is a gift to the field insofar as if everyone can just align around these, just measure these. Right. You know, and you don't need to exhaust yourselves because without knowing what you need to measure – you can't answer what you don't need to measure. Exactly. So everyone's just running around measuring everything, exhausting their employees with surveys and their HR department with constant requests of, well, so-and-so is reporting these statistics. Do we slice and dice our data that way? No. Can we? It's it's very exhausting. And no wonder we don't have universal data points. Right. And and the other thing is it's the trade-off of short and long term. Mm-hmm. So while in the short mm-hmm. term, it's hard to pull this together. We also know that you cannot, ma- you cannot manage what you don't measure. Mm-hmm. And that if long term, we know that people are an organization's greatest assets mm-hmm. at every level of that pipeline. Yep. If you're investing in talent acquisition, development, and retention, mm-hmm. without this data, you're really shooting in the dark. Yeah, that's it. I mean, that we could have another hour, <laughs> hours on that. But you're right. I mean, when you really think about that time horizon, I think we can all agree we've seen a shift in a lot of leadership of, of companies from, you know, caring about their legacy and their reputation when they retire and wanting to lead in a way that does honor to the employee's who work there for decades or decades to a much more quarterly return focused where investing in these long-term things is less um, immediately beneficial to their short-term goals. So the person that I'm talking to who has this amazing ability to connect the things that matter to us socially (laughs) and the things that matter in business is Sandy Hunt. She is my colleague. She is the senior director at the Wharton Social Impact Initiative and co-author of the report, Four for Women, a framework for evaluating companies' impact on the women they employ. I, as usual, am Laura Zarrow, executive director of Wharton People Analytics, um, for today's discussion here on Women at Work on Sirius XM 132. So, Sandy, As we're talking about these things, Mm -hmm. um, one of the things that I found particularly encouraging is that while some of these things are hard to report, 
others of these are actually not that hard to gather. Mm -hmm. And it was particularly in the satisfaction space. Talk to us about that. Yeah, so satisfaction is interesting because – you know, in one hand, I do think a lot of folks would say, gosh, this has got to be the hardest to measure. Um, but there are actually a number of very sort of research and evidence supported characteristics that lead to increased job satisfaction, such as autonomy and job variety, um, the organizational climate of, of the company. And similarly, there are very strong factors that research supports negatively contributing to job satisfaction, um, like workplace stress and job insecurity and tolerance um, of sexual harassment in the company. Um, So these are things that we know matter. Evidence suggests they matter. We have the research to support it. And so satisfaction is one thing that can be pretty easily measured through employee surveys. And and if you know where you stand, you can effectively start to, you know, peel that back a little bit and say, okay, well, why is this happening and what can we change? We're not here to say, again, overnight, everyone should be, you know, sterling and have, you know, all of these things met. But a lot of these companies are already investing a ton of time and energy into people engagement and employee retention. And we worry that they might not always be measuring the right things and be spending a ton of very well-intentioned time and energy on other things. And so we really would like to say, you know, measure these things, look at job satisfaction in this way, and you might be able to marshal your resources in a way that's much more effective, a true win-win. I'll give you an example. Please of where, Like there are little, people are doing these surveys all the time. Mm-hmm. A lot of people genuinely care about how their mm-hmm. employees feel. But I saw on the same survey um, that they were trying to assess engagement mm-hmm. and how impactful the engagement inputs were. Okay. One of them was we had a big holiday party with mocktails in the middle of the afternoon. Okay. And the other was we created an opportunity to give employees places to process their performance evaluation feedback. Those are so fun. A physical space? No, like time oh. and space oh, okay. with somebody to talk about okay. it so they cool. can internalize it and put mm-hmm. it to use. So if you think about those two things, mm-hmm. they're both inputs. Mm-hmm. They both were sincerely given, but they have very different outputs mm-hmm. and they have very different weights attached yep. to them. Yep. Yes, creating a social life for your employees, giving them a chance to connect, having a little mm-hmm. fun at work, that's great. But is that the kind of input that's going to get you to an output that's going to tell you, are they represented? Is there fair pay? Yep. Is their health and safety? Is stress diminished? Is Satisfaction. And given that one of the core reliable questions in satisfaction is do I feel like I can advance at my company? Mm -hmm. Do I feel like I make a difference? Do I enjoy my work? You know, looking at the difference between the inputs of how do I help you process your performance evaluation Mm -hmm. and does that lead to improvement in satisfaction surveys Mm -hmm. is where you can start to align the input and the output in ways that can be consistently gathered and reported. Absolutely. And I don't think we are. I don't think we're going to see a shift in this trend for increased uh, corporate transparency. And I get it. It would be scary to, to run these statistics and say, OK, you know, if, if a CEO is listening and they call their head of HR tomorrow and say, turn to page 37 of this report and I want to see these metrics. I understand. Like, we have a very patriarchal society. Like, I'm blaming a company individually for how we got here. There are going to be deltas, but we're going to, as a society, start. we're starting to demand that data more. So you might as well know where you are sincerely. And then you can, as I said, marshal resources effectively. You might have a company where, to your example, um, the biggest challenge is that they say, you know, networking opportunities are very limited. We're a call center and we're all sitting down or a software firm and everyone's coding at their desks with noise-canceling headphones. That holiday party might actually be a solution to a pain point you have. But you might have a workplace with sexual harassment culture and cocktails <laughs> and a party <laughs> might not be a good investment for you. So, again, that's why uh, we don't you know, have answers in this report for what you should do. But we hope that by taking, you know, by going through this assessment, you're then able to go like, holy cow, you know, we had no idea that this particular dimension was uh, what we're doing so poorly on. Let's get together a focus group and understand why that is, because maybe it isn't the hardest fix in the world. Um, a cool, really cool company uh, we interviewed on Dollars and Change, our Sirius XM show called San Antonio Shoes, uh, has a factory that makes shoes here in the United States in San Antonio, Texas. And they're great shoes, especially for a working woman. Like you can be on them forever. They're great, well-made shoes. But their um, factory floor hours are the local school hours. 
Which makes so much sense. Which makes so much sense. Does it matter to them if shoes are made from nine to five or seven to three? I don't know. I don't know much about My the shoe. My whole life would make more sense uh, yeah, if I, I could work seven to I don't know too much about the shoe business, but I don't think that would be, you know, a catastrophic change. And that's the way they've done business. It seems to be sort of embedded in their culture long term. But as a result, for a factory, you know, a, a production facility, my guess is they're going to be head and shoulders or over their peers in terms of representation and probably pay and satisfaction in terms of the gender diversity of their workforce because of that very simple tweak that's not probably cutting into their bottom line, not decreasing. You know, it's, no, if anything, quite, it's going to save them money in recruitment and hiring. And quite importantly, it demonstrates that when you were saying before, you know, you don't want somebody to feel bad or like they failed or they're being attacked mm-hmm. when we say your organization needs to change, especially if it's not a woman at the helm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and that there are a couple of kind of core messages I think we should send out there. Yes. One is that we know that there are a lot of good men who really want oh, yeah. to see these things improve and that these are powerful tools Absolutely. For they're working against a lot. Yes, those and, men, and that these are powerful tools to help you do the thing you want to do anyway, mm-hmm. and that also um, it's not a zero sum game. Mm-mm. That that factory schedule example was, I think, a wonderful demonstration of the fact that something was gained but nothing was lost. Yeah, those are probably better dads who work there too. You know, yeah. maybe they have more balanced partnerships or what? You know what I mean? Like, there's a lot of, um, yeah, exactly, not zero sum. Yes, and what that really means is that in order for an underrepresented group to gain ground, it doesn't mean that the dominant group has to lose ground. It's that we all benefit by listening to one another and solving these problems based on real facts and figures and not intuition and gut. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because we're all so subject to our own unconscious bias. I'm sure not a show goes by (laughs) of your show that that word, that phrase isn't used, but we're all, it's we all everywhere. are who we are. We're all the byproduct of our upbringing and our, you know, our culture and our society. That varies for every single person. And so that's why data is so important because not because we think people are jerks trying to do the wrong thing, but because, A, we have a, a culture that has been shaped and normed. Every culture has been shaped and normed so significantly. And B, every individual is different. And that's why you can't say, Laura, is your company good for women? Sandy, is your company good for women? Because we're different women with different experiences. We're going to have different answers. Good to me might not be good to you. But if we say, how do you measure up against this data? Now, I have a really clear way to A, congratulate you on your success. B, tell you where you need to improve. And C, be able to um, invest in companies the way you want to invest. Absolutely, which is why we know you are a byproduct of the Wharton environment. <laughs> because, you know, evidence-based decision-making. on the shoulders of uh, fabulous teammates. Indeed, Sandy. Thank you so much for taking the time to join me. And thank fun. you for this amazing work. It's important for all of us. We I hope really it's helpful. Appreciate we it. hope, uh, we, we're eager to hear what people have to say about it. It's posted on LinkedIn, our website, social media. But we'd love to hear from you know your listeners about how this resonates, if it's helpful, how it's helpful. If not, where can they find you? Where they, can they find more information on the report? Yep. just You can Google Wharton Social Impact. You can go to wharton.com slash social impact. You can find us on all the social medias. Um, and we'd be excited to engage with you there. Sandy, thank you so much. Thank you, Laura. Thank you all for listening today. And if you have a question you heard on today's show, email us at businessradio at seriesxm.com. Follow us on Twitter at bizradio132 and at Laura's Arrow. This is Women at Work. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.